Everyone else, Second Peter. I am again your guest teacher. Pray for the young family. Pray for so many families. Lots of people sick. RSV and KGB and FBI and... No, seriously, lots of people sick um, with lots of different stuff. Lord, touch each one. Second Peter, <clears throat> chapter 2. At least once a week, somebody asks me, hey, a friend of mine is going to such and such church. Is that a good church? My daughter's going to, to XYZ church. Is, is that okay? Are they, are they, should I be worried? And my first answer is usually, well, do they teach the Bible there? Which is not a complete answer unto itself, but it's a good place to start. And it's surprising how many fellowships that actually weeds out. Do they teach the Bible? Like, do, do they get into the Word of God? Well, no, but... Okay, stop. <laughs> no buts. You're the one who asked me the question. If they don't teach the Bible, then the answer is, yeah, you should be worried. Yeah, it's probably not someplace where you want your loved ones going. If they're not teaching the Bible, then they're teaching something less than the Word of God, right? Which means they're teaching human ideas. And if we were honest, that wouldn't even be church. That would be a TED Talk. Are they teaching the Bible? If you can't, if you, if, if, if it's no but, you can stop with no, because but doesn't matter. If they don't teach the Bible, you already know enough to tell your friend, your neighbor, your loved one, yeah, run, don't walk to the nearest exit. Next question, are they teaching anything in addition to the Bible? Another book, another testament, another publication, something written by that pastor or someone else that's essential, it's necessary. You need this to understand God's plan for your life. You, the Bible is fine, but this will explain the Bible, elaborate on the Bible. This is, an, this, is, this is a new and improved Bible. No, same answer, run, don't walk to the nearest exit. Because if we believe the word of God is incomplete, it's insufficient, it's broken or deficient in a way that requires men or angels to fix it. That's also not church the way we think of church. If you know someone like that in a fellowship like that, pray for them now because they're being lied to. And pray for people who are in a church that appears to be teaching the Bible, doesn't seem to be teaching anything but the Bible because they may or may not be okay also, well, all, all they do is they, is, is, you know, there's no, no extra testament, there's no extra publication, there's, okay, but how are they teaching the Bible is the next question we have to ask. Because you know if you torture scripture enough, it'll confess to everything, right? Or to anything. And in the world today, we have groups calling themselves churches led by people calling themselves pastors, that the Bible refers to another way. The Bible refers to them as false teachers. Men and women who are skilled torturers, expert at twisting scripture until it says things that aren't remotely true. You'd like to think that the Bible would, would shield itself against that. That as people study the word for themselves, they'd compare scripture with scripture and eventually they'd figure out how and where they're, be, they're, they're being lied to. And, that, and, and often that happens, certainly that happens. Praise God that that happens, but it doesn't always happen. It's, it's actually, I think, the exception rather than the rule. Because false teachers, teachers who twist scripture for their own purposes, people who deceive the world with a Bible in their hand, tend to be really good at what they do. Which is why Peter, James, John, Jude, Luke, Jesus himself all warn us about them. That's Peter's topic tonight. It's our subject tonight. How do we recognize false teachers when we see them, when we hear them? What do we need to know about them? What do we need to tell others about them? That's what Peter's going to talk about as we look at chapter 2, 2 Peter tonight. Verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you. First thing Peter wants us to know is false prophets, I'm sorry, false teachers do exist. We're going to have 15, count them, 15 marks of false teachers tonight brought to you by the letter D. Number one, they do 
exist. Peter starts off saying, but. Why does he start off with but? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? He just got done telling us in chapter 1, the Old Testaments were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, as we turn to chapter 2, he's saying not all prophets, not all who claim to be prophets can make that claim. Not all who claim to be prophets are in fact inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because in Peter's day, there were false prophets out there telling all kinds of lies. Clearly not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's no different in our day. His day, our day, it's no different. There are some teachers who are deeply, firmly, devoutly committed to teaching the truth and others who are just as committed to their lies, making it up as they go. False teachers do exist, and it's important we start there, Peter says. It's important we get one thing straight from the very first part of the very first verse. There are some things that are false. If there was no such thing as true and false, we couldn't have false teachers. The term wouldn't mean anything. If everything was a matter of opinion, if everything was, well, you have your perspective and I have my perspective, then we wouldn't be able to say you're a false teacher. You would just be a teacher I disagree with. You're not my flavor. You're not my taste. The thing is, there's true and there's not true in the universe. And false teachers are the ones who teach the not true. We talked about this this weekend, right? There are things that are non-essential, things we can disagree about. We talked a lot about baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can have a lot of different perspectives on that, and we can still be friends, and we can still all be talking about what is true. But there are things that are not true. There are not many paths and one God. That, that falls into the category of false. And there are some people out there deliberately teaching what's false. They don't build themselves that way. You don't drive the street and, and see, first, first church of the false prophet. They usually build themselves exactly the opposite way, in fact. Higher truth, better truth, newly revealed truth, new and improved truth, more scholarly, deeper truth. False teachers don't bring their lies in through the front door, still verse 1. They secretly subtly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Heresy is one of those words that has a lot of different definitions. For our purposes tonight, let's just call heresy believing what we want to believe rather than what's true. There's lots of things we can believe about and disagree, like I said. There are lots of things that are open to interpretation, room for multiple perspectives, but there are things that we must agree upon to call ourselves Christians. False teachers seize on those, tweak them, twist them, subtly warp them. What am I talking about? Heaven, hell, the Bible, Trinity, grace, works, faith, crucifixion, resurrection. And the thing that they all have in common, when you twist it or turn it even slightly, these are things that leave us with a different Jesus than the Bible presents to us. That's the hallmark of a false teacher. Number one was that they do exist. Point number two, they deny the Jesus of the Bible. Usually not flat out, usually not to your face. They work covertly, secretly, Peter says. Usually false teachers are not going against Jesus with an all-out assault. That comes from the world. That comes from people like Richard Dawkins. That comes from atheists. False teachers are more subtle. They bring heresy in stealthily. They know the best way to lie is to tell most of the truth. So, yeah, Jesus exists. They'll concede that they want you to believe that. But he wasn't God. He was just serving God. He wasn't, just, he wasn't a man. He just appeared as a man. He died on the cross, but not for our sins. He died for our sins, but it wasn't enough. These are the kinds of things a false teacher will try to convince you of. The heart and soul of the gospel tells us Jesus was fully man and fully God, lived a perfect life, died so our sins could be forgiven. Had to be a man so he could die. He had to be God so his death could be sufficient. We know that. We talk about that. If a teacher denies any part of that, they are a false teacher denying the very Lord who bought them. We'll talk about bought them in a second. But, but understand, in, in, our, in our politically correct, spiritually sensitive, 
ecumenical age, we want to cover an awful lot of false teaching with, well, they just believe differently. They just emphasize different things. We can emphasize different things, but if someone denies that Jesus is who he says he is, they're denying the gospel, and that's not okay. To deny the gospel is to deny biblical Christianity. And the line has to be there. Okay, I said we were going to come back to bought them. That sounds like false teachers are saved. They deny the Lord who bought them. How can you deny Jesus? How can you, how can you deny the true Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, and still be saved? Answer is you can't. But it, but it says right there, Jesus bought them. He did. Here's, here's, go with me on this. He bought them. He didn't redeem them. What's the difference? Christmas is coming. My mom, when she was alive, every Christmas would get me a Barnes & Noble gift card, which tells you how long ago that was. Every Christmas, she'd get me a Barnes & Noble gift card, and more often than not, when, when the next December rolled around, I would open a drawer and I would find that Barnes & Noble gift card still there, because who goes to bookstores anymore when you can get books delivered right to your house from Amazon? But that was mom. She would buy... Go with me on this. She would buy the gift card, but a year later, it was still sitting in my drawer. I hadn't redeemed it. I hadn't gotten the value of it. Jesus purchased the entire world. That's parable of the field, right? Matthew 13, 44. 1 John 2, 2, same thing. Jesus' death was sufficient for all, but some have chosen to not redeem what he purchased, including the false teachers that he's, Peter's worrying about. Later in the letter, he calls them dogs and pigs, and that's fun. He calls them dogs and pigs. He does not call them what? Sheep. Yeah, they're not believers. They're people Jesus died for, but they've made a choice, knowingly or unknowingly, to live their own lives rather than trust in his death. So we got to pick up the pace a little bit. False teachers do exist. That was number one. They deny Jesus. That was number two. Verse two, they destroy their followers. Verse two, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Destructive here implies following these teachers will result in the destruction of their soul. And we know from our study in Isaiah, which we'll get back to in 2023, destruction doesn't mean annihilation. Destruction means wreckage. Destruction means wrecked, not wiped out. And here, in this context, it means eternal damnation. Eternal, perpetual, never-ending wreckage. That's what's at stake here. So how do they pull it off, these false teachers? How do they get people to follow them? Simple, they tell people what they want to hear. Verse 3, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. The deceptive here, a little free language lesson on a Wednesday night, is plastos, from which we get plastic. What's the defining quality of plastic? It's moldable. False teachers, here's number four, distort the truth of the Bible. They mold it, they shape it, they warp it to tell whatever story suits their purpose. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be poor and work really hard. God wants you to enjoy life. He made drugs and sex and rock and roll so that you would be happy. What's the result when false teachers are done molding words to suit their purposes, to tell you what you want to hear? When they tell you what you want to hear, they get what they want, whether that's money or prestige or power persuading large numbers of people that what they want is okay gets me what I think is okay. But it destroys the people sitting under them. That's in the long run. Even before that happens, point number five, they'll damage the church. Long run, the, dam the, the damage is destruction, but short term, the damage is to the body of Christ. Not, not the church that they pastor. The church they pastor is probably doing fine. But our church, the church, the true church, the Christ-believing, Christ-following church. And, and here's the thing, is they damage the church whether they're good at what they do or not. 
If false teachers have credibility in the world, then when we speak out and, 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 and defend the truth of Scripture, and we say, well, okay, here's what the Bible says about abortion. Here's what the Bible says about premarital sex. Here's what the Bible says about there's one way to God. They'll make sure that we're the ones who look backward and uptight. Think Oprah. The world believes Oprah's a Christian because she says that she is. But she is such a wide-gate teacher, and I use that word in quotes, that anybody who's reading the Bible even a little bit looks out of touch or intolerant by comparison. That's, that's if someone is popular in the world, and, and, and certainly Oprah is. On the other hand, what about false teachers who are laughed at, mocked, and ridiculed by the world? They hurt us too. Think about Harold Camping. Since Harold Camping predicted the end of the world two, three, six times, whatever it is, we have a hard time using the word rapture in conversation with anybody because the immediate association is, oh, you're one of those people with the billboards. See, either way, we lose. If the world loves them, we lose. If the world mocks them, we lose. And that's what Peter means, verse 2, when he says, because of false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. If false teachers are taken seriously, we lose. If they're not taken seriously, we lose. A lot of times they're taken seriously, especially if they're successful in worldly terms. Our denomination is growing. Our churches are exploding. Yeah, why wouldn't they be? Who wouldn't want to go to a church that says you can have the sin that you want and Jesus too? So why doesn't God do something? He will. Point number six, still verse three, but point number six already. False teachers are destined for judgment. Destined for judgment. Peter says it more poetically, of course. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. What he's reminding us of is the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's not on a coffee break. He's not worn out. And he's not wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do with all of these false teachers. Oh my. No, he's already passed judgment. He's just waiting for the perfect time to execute judgment. And he will. How do we know? Peter's going to say he's done it before. Peter really wants us to get this, so he's going to devote a few verses to it. He wants us to understand the seriousness of denying the Jesus of the Bible, substituting doctrine based on what's popular, what people want to hear, what will get them in the door for what's true. And to convey the seriousness of this, he says, God's done it before, judged them before. Let me give you three examples, starting in verse 4. Three Old Testament examples to give us a picture of what's waiting for these false teachers. For if God, verse 4, did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, pause here. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, he's certainly going to judge humans who pervert his word. Now, we can argue about what the, judge, what the reference to fallen angels is here. Is it the angels who fell with Satan? Is this the Nephilim in Genesis 6 who sinned with humans? It could be theological chew toy for another night. God is comparing false teachers to angelic beings who rebelled against him and tried to corrupt his creation. If those angels are bound in hell awaiting final judgment, and they are, the teachers who deny the Jesus of the Bible, okay, not hell, but Babuso, and, okay, the teachers who deny the Jesus of the Bible shouldn't expect any less. That's one example. Second example, also Genesis 6, verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Why did God destroy the world in Noah's day? Sin, yeah, entire planet, entire planet of people, and we don't know how many people populated the planet. We like to think, oh, it was just a few hundred. Could have been millions, could have been billions. We do not know. But however many there were, they were living as if God didn't exist. And for 120 years, Noah tried to tell them different. And the total soul harvest of Noah's ministry, eight. If God destroys a world, a planet full of people for living like he doesn't exist, people who teach 
the God of the Bible doesn't exist shouldn't expect a different fate. Third example, verse 6, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And we know that story. We think we know that story. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah as all about the sin of homosexuality. Eh, that was a symptom. The real sin, the root, the root issue, just like the people before the flood, was practical atheism. The, their, their practical, whatever they said they believed, who cares? Actions speak louder than words. And their actions, by their deeds, by what they did, they denied God. Didn't have to be homosexuality. Could have been bestiality, pornography, premarital intimacy, adultery. All the same in God's eyes. All practical atheism. Acting like God's not there, or he doesn't care, or he's unaware when we believe that, when we decide that, and when we choose to sin because of that, we're saying by our actions, the God of the Bible isn't really the God of, of, the, of the universe. He doesn't really exist. We'll keep going in a second, but step back for a moment. What do you notice about those three examples? Fallen angels, verse 5. People before the flood, verse 6. Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Fallen angels were following Satan. People before the flood were following the world. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were following their flesh. Isn't that interesting? I don't think that Peter grabbed these examples casually. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think he deliberately chose three examples corresponding to the three enemies of our soul. The three enemies that Jesus defeated on the cross. The world, our flesh, and Satan. And, and I think he does this, I think Peter did this to demonstrate, to show us, it doesn't matter which way we decide to go wrong. Wrong is wrong. Wrong is wrong, and God is God, yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to allow anyone to rewrite truth and put his name on it without real eternal consequences. God's going to condemn them, verse 6, just like he condemned the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. False teachers can't say they weren't warned. But you know what the real sobering thing is? Sodom and Gomorrah, the world before Noah, and for, and for all we know, the angels, but the human examples certainly, Right up to the moment of judgment, they thought everything was fine. People before the flood were convinced everything was great, even after it started to rain. Now go with me. The heretic, the person Peter's talking about, is going to listen to what he just said and try to spin it. Oh, so what you're saying is I've got to live a perfect life then. What you're saying is I can't commit any sin. I can't speak any error. I can't get the smallest thing wrong or I'm going to hell. That's what you just said, Peter? No, sorry. <laughs> That's not what he said. That's what they want to, to, to hear. They want to spin what Peter said. You know, that, you can't believe that theology. God couldn't be that intolerant. His theology is wrong. Come listen to mine. Except that's not what Peter is saying. Because he's already said eight people, eight people did escape the flood. Eight people did escape judgment. And verse 7, even more remarkably, Lot escaped judgment. God delivered righteous Lot. Underline that. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Okay, if we know anything about Lot, that gets our attention. Because everything we know about Lot, he was a pretty flaky guy. Most people are actually surprised to get here in Peter's letter and, and learn he was, wait, Lot? Same Lot? Is this one of those times where the Old Testament, like there's like eight people with the same name? This is a different Lot. No, same dude. And Peter says twice in two verses, he's righteous. Go back and look at Genesis 19. He was spiritual weak, he was morally deficient, he was drunk all the time. That's good news for us. Proves Lot could not, would not, was not saved on the basis of his works. No one can be. Pretty thoroughly a sinner, but righteous in God's eyes. Why? Verse 8, he hated sin, he trusted God. It's as simple as that. 
I think Lot is an example of the kind of guy Jude talks about when he says some are saved like being plucked out of the fire. But Peter makes it clear, Lot was saved. Because verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the, the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And that's what false teachers have to look forward to. Great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Not because they sinned. Lot sinned. Okay, here you go. How much did Lot sin? A little, little gift for you on a Wednesday night. Looked like a guy completely given over to the world. But at the end of the day, he still believed God was right and sin was wrong. As opposed to false teachers who teach that at least some sin is all right and the God of the Bible is all wrong. God's going to judge them. His habit, just two examples here, there's many more in Scripture, God's practice is to rescue the godly before judging the wicked. Lot is an example. Noah is an example. The church will be an example. God's going to let the church age play out. He's going to allow as many as will be saved be saved. And then he's going to judge those who refuse to be rescued. And we're going to talk a lot about it when we get back to Isaiah. God's going to judge, especially, verse 10, those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Another hallmark of false teachers, here's number seven. We kind of dropped off for a while. Halfway there, false teachers despise authority, except their own. They're presumptuous and self-willed, verse 10. They want what they want when they want it. They've built up a whole religion typically around why they should be able to have what they want when they want when they want it. And they're contemptuous. They're dismissive of anyone who tells them that they can't. Verse 10, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. This gets a little cryptic. Most commentators get, get to an understanding by way of Jude. They notice that dignitaries can also be translated glorious ones, and then lateral to Jude, because there's a lot of similarities between 2 Peter and Jude. When God really wants us to grasp something, he, he tells us two or three times. By two or three witnesses is a thing established. When we get to Colossians on Sundays, we're going to find that Paul has nothing new to say to the Colossians. He's just underlining and highlighting things that he said before. But anyway, Jude 9, we read when Michael the archangel goes mano a mano against Satan, he doesn't bring reviling accusations against him. Instead, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, Michael the archangel doesn't rebuke Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Take that understanding, walk it back to 2 Peter. Peter's saying, God's angels don't curse or condemn Satan. They leave that to God. But false teachers the false teachers Peter's talking about, lower life forms than angels, at least right now. One day we judge angels, but not yet. Today, you and I, less powerful than angels, take on a, uh, false teachers will take upon themselves to do what angels won't do, curse and condemn Satan. Okay, is, is that the only way to read that verse? No. Do dignitaries have to be angels? No, but, but, but it gives us the idea, verse 10, arrogance. False teachers are arrogant. They have no problem placing themselves above authorities, authorities that God establishes. They don't like God's plan. They say God is wrong. They don't like God's pastors. Those pastors are corrupt. Listen to me. And cult, cult leaders. One reason I'm drawn to, to the interpretation that it's about uh, going against Satan, rebuking him, binding him. Most cult leaders... They, they, they boast in their ability to do that. I can rebuke Satan. I can bind Satan with my words. I can cast... Then I, Satan is more powerful than we are. And it takes a false teacher to deny that. Number eight, discounting Satan is another hallmark of false teachers. Because if you think about it, if Satan is real and powerful and not subject to human authority, that makes evil dangerous. That might make people look for a real God, a God who's bigger than Satan. If Satan is small, is, if Satan is puny, if Satan is easily defeated, 
well, then I can settle for a convenient God. That's everything that C.S. Lewis talks about in screw tape letters. If, 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 if false teachers can shrink Satan down to human size or smaller, evil wins. But, but, but we shouldn't be surprised that false teachers play like this. Peter says in verse 12, These, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. You and I who are in Christ Jesus, we have the law of love written on our heart. Love God, love others. That's, that's engraved on our heart, yeah? False teachers who have rejected Jesus have the law of the jungle written on their heart. Survival of the fittest. Do what you gotta do. Do whatever it takes in order to come up on top. Say things that are true, say the things that aren't true, make up complete gibberish. But number nine, false teachers are determined to prevail against anyone and everyone. Because on some level they know, having rejected Jesus, for them this world is as good as it gets. And they got to make the most of it before they're judged. And they will be judged. Verse 12, they'll utterly perish in their own corruption. For you and I, the best thing in this world isn't as good as the worst thing in heaven. For you and I, the, the best thing in this world is going to look horrible compared to the worst thing in heaven. For the unbeliever, this world is as good as it gets. Because the best thing in hell is worse than the worst thing in this world. That's for any unbeliever. For the false teacher, it's even worse. Because you and I can look forward to different degrees of reward in heaven. We're comfortable with that, right? Unbelievers are going to experience different degrees of torment in hell. And I can, I can prove that to you a bunch of different ways, but, but it makes intuitive sense, doesn't it? It's one thing to go to hell for your own sins, but what is the punishment if you drag other people there with you? The false teacher who not only rejects Christ, but draws people away from Christ? There's no way that they won't have a greater burden to bear. And Peter says so, verse 13. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Most sin, the way that you and I think of sin, happens in the shadows. It happens out of sight, whether that's out of shame or because of societal pressure. Those who are determined to sin usually wait until they're out of sight, but the false teacher sins in the middle of the day. They're like the ones we read about in Zephaniah who rose early. They set an alarm, they got up early so they'd have more of the day available to them to sin. They'll sin in the brightness of the sun. They'll sin on national television because they have no shame and because they love the spotlight. They'll bring their sin right into church if you let them. Your church, our church, anyone's church. Because they're trying to convince anyone that'll listen that sin isn't sin. Idol worship, greed, ambition, fornication, selfishness, arrogance, they'll look you in the eye and they'll say, no, that's not sin. That's, that's not something to be called sin, that's something to be celebrated. What you call sin is virtue, you're confused. Except God says, no, you're confused. And teachers who, who, who try to convince us that we're the ones who are confused, verse 13, are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Bottom line is sooner or later, number 10, they'll dismiss morality. Oh, you, you Puritans, you Victorians, you mouth-breathing illiterates. You backcountry bumpkins, you're obsolete, you're irrelevant, you're behind the times. They dismiss morality, which is easy to do because morality is downstream from theology. If you warp the theology, then the morality that follows from it is also going to be warped. And from there, everything is up for grabs. Whatever they go, whatever they're doing, even in church, especially in church, the false teacher will always be scheming because they've always already bent theology, they've already bent morality. Everything exists to serve me and my identity. How can I get my needs met? My emotional needs, my physical needs, financial needs, sexual needs. The common denominator is me, my, mine. Because no one understands me. Not God, not my family, not my friends. And they draw in other people who are similarly alienated. And it's just tools. A group of people who are conspiring to try to help each other feel better. And false teachers are really good at creating that sense of community. Verse 14, they're brilliant at enticing unstable souls. 
That word entice is a term from fishing. It means to catch with bait. What bait does the false teacher use? We've already seen it. They appeal to the world. They appeal to spiritual pride. They appeal to the flesh. They appeal to the world. The Bible's out of date. It was made for a different time. They appeal to spiritual pride. No one understands these deep things, but you do because you're a deep thinker. Or an appeal to the flesh. God loves you and wants you to be happy. Do what you need to make you feel better. Whatever best justifies, whatever best manipulates, that's the bait they're going to use, verse, uh, point number 11, to deceive the unstable. Now, there's more to fishing than bait. There's some skill involved. But the false teacher will cultivate that as well. They've got a heart trained, verse 14, a heart trained in covetous practices. Think about all the articles that you've ever read about child molesters and how the people who, who molest children have or develop a sixth sense for vulnerability. They know what bait to use, and they know where the hungry fish will be. And the child molester gets better and better about seeking out prospective targets. They know the insecurities to play to, how to make that child feel safe, feel special. They'll invest months or even years grooming that individual, fishing for, enticing their intended victim. The cult leader does the same thing the same way. They're brilliant at spotting potential targets and, and, and appealing to their, to their insecurity, to their brokenness, to their damaged heart. Whether, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or whether it's through a large-scale promotion, they know where the fish are, they know the bait to use, they know the right buttons to push, the right vulnerabilities to exploit. To convince the people, you, you can't be satisfied with Jesus of the Bible. Here's what you really need. And they're Verse 14, they're accursed children. N not the people that the cult leaders attract, the, 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 the cult leaders, the false teachers themselves. And by the way, notice Peter's not cursing them himself because he's already said we don't do that. He's just stating a fact. Their eternal destiny is hell. Verse six, uh, 15, they've forsaken the right way and gone astray. This isn't about ignorance. They had a chance to respond to the gospel. They chose not to. Why? Number 12, they're driven by greed. Verse 15, they follow the way of Balaam, the son of Baer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. We read about Balaam in Numbers 22 and 23, prophet from Midian, hired by Moab to curse Israel. He was a prophet for money. He was hired, that was his gig. He wasn't prophesying because it was true, because it was God's word. He was prophesying what he was paid to say, and it worked okay for a while until God intervenes. Verse 16, Balaam was rebuked for his iniquity. God put an angel who stood in his path, refused to let Balaam continue on that mission to deceive. But see, Balaam is so, so spiritually deceived, he's so greedy, he doesn't even see, he can't even perceive the angel standing there. All he knows is that his donkey won't keep going. Three times this happened. Every time the donkey just stops until finally God has the donkey explain what's going on. Verse 16, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. But only for a little while, Numbers 23, before long he's back to his own tricks, driven by greed, more interested in short-term gain than, oh, I don't know, eternal glory. Because that's what false teachers do. And tragically, they persuade others to make the same bad choices, which makes them, verse 17, wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. In the Middle East, even today, water is among the most precious resources. Few things more valuable than water. So Peter's using that language, something all of his leaders, uh, sorry, all of his readers could relate to. Heretics find the thirstiest people that they can and promise them water when all they really have to back up their promises are dry wells. Storm clouds that don't bring rain. Image works on another level if you think back to last weekend. What did Jesus promise the woman at the well? Fountains of living water. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus brings living water. False teachers promise what looks like water ends up being a mirage. That's not okay with God. Because among other things, when they're misrepresenting God, they're making him out to be God who says, psych, <laughs> yeah, I promised you bread, but here's a stone. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's not who God is. He's our Father who loves us. 
He's not an evil trickster. He's not Loki who, who delights to, to play, play games with us. God's not that guy. He sent his son into the world to die that we might never thirst again. He sent Jesus to be the light of the world. But in the name of Jesus, here's number 13, false teachers darken the world. But only for a while. Eventually, light's going to drive out darkness. And those who peddle the darkness in Jesus' uh, Jesus' name are going to be the ones, verse 17, who experience the blackness of darkness forever. let, let Let the weight of that phrase hit you. The blackness of darkness forever. That's a powerful phrase and a whole chapter full of powerful phrases. Holy Spirit's going out of his way to make sure we understand the deepest, darkest, most excruciating levels of hell are reserved for teachers who take the name of the Lord in vain. Because that's really what that commandment is all about. Those who aren't satisfied to just reject Jesus, but who go out and teach a false Jesus knowing that there's some who will believe them. False teachers don't just lie. Number 14, they dress up their lies. They use impressive scholarly language, quotes from experts, revisionist history, dubious anthropology. It's a bunch of cotton candy. It's packing peanuts, but there's nothing in the box. It's fluff without substance. Great, verse 18, great swelling words of emptiness. Sound and fury signifying nothing. But it makes people feel better about believing the lie. It cushions the impact. Makes them feel better about ignoring God and do what they want to do. The expert said it was okay. I heard it on Oprah. She recommended a book. It was number one in her book club. The tragic thing is the victims are often those who are most desperately trying to get it right. The cult, the false teacher, the apostate church, verse 18, they all allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped. Better translation, actually trying to escape, actually escaping or in the process of trying to escape from those who live in error. Cults don't go after happy people. False teachers don't recruit people satisfied with their lives. They look for those who are sick and tired of being sick and tired and make, make, them offer, make, them, make them an offer, make them a promise. They don't often lure the saved away, but they love the seeking. Cults don't appeal to atheists. They appeal to people who are looking for God and looking for the things that only God offers. And then they, they, they might be even looking for a church. When someone comes along a person or something they see on TV or the internet, or someone knocks at their door, a false teacher comes along to tell this sad, frustrated, maybe desperate person, oh, you're not going to find the answer in that church or in that book or with that person. No, your problem is that church. Your problem is that Bible. Your problem is the guilt that the traditional church, your old church, that church, the the guilt that they're putting on you, No, no, your problem isn't sin, it's guilt. And the solution to your problem is stop feeling guilty. God wants you to be happy. And and I'll tell you how to be happy. Do do, Do what you need to do to make you feel better. 15. And this is where we wrap up. Do what you need to do to make you feel better. Don't worry about being damned to hell. Because that's where false teachers and their followers will be at the end of the story. Flames will burn hotter for the teachers than the followers, but small consolation for those who are going to be drawn into their lies and empty promises. While they promise them liberty, verse 19, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. False teachers promise something that they can't deliver. They promise freedom, and they can't deliver it because we can't give what we don't have. And they don't have the freedom that they promise. They don't have it themselves. Because the only real freedom, the only freedom we'll ever know, the freedom that we're born craving, is the freedom we have in Christ. Freedom is knowing that we're forgiven. Freedom is knowing that my worst mistakes God weaves into a tapestry of grace. Freedom 
is having the shackles of sin drop and death no longer something to be feared. False teacher can't offer any of that because you can't give what you don't got. The heretic doesn't have freedom in Christ. They have freedom from Christ. And that's not freedom at all. That's the opposite of freedom. Anyone, anyone old enough to remember the TV show The Prisoner? Late 60s. It was like 67, 68. And, and it, was, it, was a T, it was a BBC TV series um, about a spy who was captured and imprisoned on the island. And every episode was a different attempt to escape. One of the last episodes of the series, he finally escapes. And, 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 and he makes his way back to London. Except that at the very end of the show, he realizes he's still on the island. Because the people imprisoning him knew he'd try to escape. So they decided to give him an escape route. And they gift-wrapped it. They made it look like everything he ever wanted. So he'd stay busy chasing freedom on a road that they picked that would keep him in captivity forever. That's what the false teacher does. And the question I got to ask as we wrap up on a Wednesday night, are we willing to sit idly by while they do that? While they lead people down blind alleys? While they hold out their arms and say, yes, put me in bondage forever, please, will you? Forever, not just this lifetime, forever is an eternity. Are we really content to sit by and do nothing? I don't, I don't think we can. I don't think it's an option. I don't think we can, we can shrug the issue off and say, well, they've got their beliefs, I've got mine. They'll go their way, I'll go my way. And, and that's, how, that's, that's the conversation they want to have. The false teacher and their followers, that's how they want to couch it. Well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. They want to end the conversation as quickly as possible. When they figure out that you have truth with a capital T, well, that's great. I'm glad that you have something that works for you. And, and we've got something that works for us. Have a good day. But that's not what Peter has spent this evening telling us. It's not about you have your belief, I have my belief. We have the truth and they have a lie. We have freedom, they have chains. We have life, they have death. Question, who's they? Who's the they in your life? When I say we have truth, they have a lie, who do you think of? Who's, who's, whose face do you picture? Who in your life is believing a lie or in danger of believing a lie? And when was the last time you reached out to them and tried to have a conversation with them about Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the only way to life? Maybe last Thursday was an opportunity. Maybe Christmas will be another opportunity. I said a couple weeks ago, you know, this time of year, we, we, we get to have conversations with different people in different ways than we get to have the rest of the year. And I think we need to. I think we need to be ready to. I think we need to be prayed up and hoping to. Oh, you don't know my family. You don't know my friend. You don't know this guy I work with. The harder I push, the harder they push back. I can talk all I want, they just shut down. Okay, maybe, maybe the answer isn't push. Maybe the answer is pull. Maybe the, maybe, maybe, maybe the approach is ask. What do you think about Jesus? How did you come to that perspective? Where, where, tell, where, where, did, where did that idea come from? What have you, what have you read that teaches that? Do, do you see that in the Bible? Can you show me where? Who else believes that? Who, who, who else believes what you believe? What evidence do they have? I mean, you're a smart person and, and, and somebody must have showed you some pretty convincing things to convince you that this is true. Lay it on me, because I'm interested. So do you have any doubts about this at all? You know, if you say, why do you believe that? Okay, all you're going to do is evoke a defensive reaction. That shuts people down. <laughs> well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Also, probably shuts the conversation down. Be interested because hopefully we are. Hopefully we're interested in their soul and their eternal address. Be interested. Why do they believe what they believe? How did they get there? Because the longer they talk, maybe, just maybe, the seams will open. The cracks will show. 
the very least, you're establishing yourself as someone who's interested in them and interested in the truth. I don't think I can do that. You know the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Okay, I'm not, by the way. I stopped watching the show, it made me sad. But let me ask you a question. You smarter than donkey? Because in Numbers 22, God used a donkey to point a false prophet to Jesus. The donkey saw what Balaam didn't see. Took Balaam into a field, pushed him up against the wall, sat down, refused to move. Finally spoke words. You willing to be a donkey for God? <laughs> willing to let God show you how to lead someone or to push back on someone who's twisting scripture out of context? Or how to just graciously refuse to move like, like Balaam's donkey? Yeah, I hear you, but I'm absolutely sure you're wrong and I love you too much to tell you different. I'm absolutely sure you're wrong and, and I want you to know I love you and, and I wouldn't say it if I didn't think your eternity was in jeopardy. Are you willing to show up and let God give you the words? Even if you're not sure what to say. Are you willing to spend time getting equipped in the word? Letting God give you the words ahead of time so when the Holy Spirit opens the door, you're excited rather than terrified. So your response is, oh, this is the conversation I was hoping for and not, oh man, I was afraid this was going to happen. I hope that you're willing. Because I'd hate to think that you're willing to believe God can use a donkey, but he can't use you. Because wouldn't that just be another form of practical atheism? Wouldn't that be the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Wouldn't that be the sin of people who lived in the time of Noah? Believing there's something that God can't do or won't do. I hope you're willing to believe that God might use you. Because there's other people that he loves, that he wants to use you to reach. That's why we're here. Jesus, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for painting this powerful, vivid, frightening picture of false teachers. We knew when we came here tonight we didn't want to be false teachers. Maybe we know a little bit more now how to recognize false teachers, how to warn people about false teachers. But Lord, as, as, we, as we sang right before the message, grow our faith, build us up, equip us, strengthen us. You've done it before. It's who you are. It's what you do. You are a strengthening God. Prepare us and equip us to confront false teaching and rescue victims. Use us to wipe scales from eyes, to open the eyes of the blind, to free those who are imprisoned, to set at liberty captives of false ideas, to continue your ministry, Jesus. War with our fear. Give us hope. Give us faith. In your holy name, amen.